many things, a writer, a preacher, an activist, but maybe most importantly, he is someone who believes in the goodness of people. The intersections between faith, religious nationalism, and social justice are becoming even greater. We see these paths crossing in different ways every day in our lives. Jonathan teaches that in these crossroads, there's opportunity to know your whole self and a space where all of you is welcome. Jonathan is the author of two critically acclaimed books, Prototype and How to Survive a Shipwreck. In these pages, you'll find a love that is inclusive and a God that brings beauty to your brokenness. Currently, Jonathan lives in Oklahoma City, where he serves as lead pastor at the table. He hosts a podcast called The Sidecast, which was recently featured in Forbes magazine. And he'll be releasing another book this coming summer, which we're really excited about. And I was going to make a little joke that the shortest adult here gets to introduce the tallest adult, um, as I'm barely five feet and he's six five. But um, if you would please join me in welcoming my friend Jonathan Marshall. Um, so as we get going, um, I thought um, it might be nice <clears throat> as we begin, if you wouldn't mind sharing briefly uh, why you see, Jonathan, the need <clears throat> excuse me, for an interse intersectional approach uh, to faith and social justice, how those things should intersect. Well, first of all, thank you, uh, Tosh, for that lovely introduction. I'm so kind. And you guys have just been an amazing hosts. Um, I'm having the best couple of days. This is such a beautiful place. What an extraordinary church. And thank you uh, for all the folks uh, here at Govin for being so hospitable. I, I just, this, this, we've just been having an amazing time. I love the church, I love the people. So great to have a lot of the folks from, uh, from your community out. And this has been a real special couple of days for me. So thank you guys for being so, so gracious. Um, to, you know, to jump right in, I mean, honestly, for me, um, in terms of the intersection of faith and social justice, you know, it's funny when, even when you, and I don't, I don't mind this at all, uh, but like even introducing me as an activist, like I don't, that word doesn't have any negative connotations for me. It's a little strange sometimes still when people say it because um, I feel like nothing about that path was sort of consciously chosen for me. Um, I mean, I'm such a product of the Pentecostal tradition I always say a self-proclaimed hillbilly Pentecostal. And for all the things that are weird and wacky about where I come from, there's a lot of wonderful things in the tradition too. And even going back to the beginning of the movement, when in the early 1900s, long before the civil rights movement or any of that, you had people of all races worshiping together and women were preaching. And there certainly was this overarching concern for the poor. That has not always held true in the movement in North America, but it certainly was in the roots. So I feel like a lot of that stuff is just kind of in the water for me. And then as I got a little bit older, and we had some of this conversation before, um, I started discovering more about the, the Wesleyan heritage. I'm not just saying that to, you know, to appease the Methodist in the house. But I mean, you know, Pentecostal, see, we are Wesley people, we really are. Like the, the, the domination I came out of was this Pentecostal revivalistic expression that came directly out of the holiness movement, and then just kind of got set on fire with the Holy Ghost. So, uh, as if it wasn't set on fire before. I'm just, I'm kidding about that. But um, in some ways, the more I learned about Wesley 
and of course with Wesley also and the whole Wesley movement, there's the, the whole concept of social holiness, all that was there. So I, I kind of felt like what happened for me is that just the more I tried to figure out what it meant for me to follow Jesus, the more it naturally led me into some of these kind of spaces. Because, and it's funny too, because I really, um, not to make it sound overly mystical, but I feel like almost anything that happened to me that kind of pulled me more on the activist side, it, it, it was just stuff that happened. I mean, almost by accident, it felt like doing the stuff that I was already doing as a preacher or pastor sort of put me in the middle of certain kind of conflicts, you know? And uh, so, so for me, they're just utterly inseparable. Like, I don't even, I don't think of them as distinct. I feel like the reason that I do anything on the activism or justice side is entirely because of Jesus, not despite of Jesus. That's the whole motivation. It's always, you know, so in some way, but, but I will say it was interesting because in my own experience of the Pentecostal church in the South, that wasn't so much what was in the water exactly where I came from. So it definitely was kind of a waking up for me that didn't come until, you know, later. But like, uh, I mean, specifically, I don't mean to over answer the question. As I tend to do. But my, um, my, my best friend in high school, um, we were very close, and I guess when I was a couple years out of high school, I think I was 21, her father died of AIDS, and I walked very closely with the family through that journey, and I definitely felt like something specifically happened during that time that just opened me up, because I still feel like in my more sort of southern rural experience of Pentecostal church, I still feel like it was a little bit sequestered away from uh, from the rest of the world and from certain kinds of suffering. And it was, all, and it was definitely something that happened um, through that experience in particular that seemed to send me on a whole different course. And in some ways I kind of felt like this, the stuff that I saw I couldn't see and there was sort of no going back after that. Jonathan, you've talked about, you just mentioned the ways that faith and social justice seem inseparable to you. I mean, that that it's hard for you to imagine one without the other. But clearly, as you alluded to, that's not the case for all people of faith. So in your work, as you travel and um, encounter different folks who are following Jesus, any sense as to why that is the case? That, that, that it isn't always obvious? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought there's so many reasons. I mean, I guess, you know, what... And not to make this too clean in terms of like how you even advertise the event, but a couple of the words that were in there, I know one of them was nationalism. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, that for me seems to be the ultimate blind spot is if your primary allegiance is to a nation state, then it skews how you read everything. I also feel like, you know, scripture is given to us, written by people from the underside. And in some ways, can really only be rightly understood from people on the other side. So I think a lot of it has to do with social location and all that. I mean, I think even in my Pentecostal tradition, you know, while it started very much as, I mean, that was a famous early book about the movement, uh, was, you know, kind of a, a movement of the, uh, of the oppressed. Uh, and that was the whole idea, is oppressed people. But as Pentecostals become a little more openly, upwardly mobile and, uh, you know, start to be more like garden variety, Evangelicals, more like, and this, I don't mean this is a slur, but kind of more like Southern Baptists who speak in tongues. It just becomes very middle class, you know. And so even my experience of that, I think, wasn't always kind of from the underside. But that, that's been my experience of it, is I feel like especially when in a time where, and I mean, so many of us think have, have watched this unfold, 
when um, people's understanding of their faith and their understanding of, of Christian witness becomes completely inseparable from what they believe about America and, and even sublimated to what they believe about America. I just, that, that keeps us really blind from seeing a lot of things that are perfectly obvious in the text. It's a great question. So, speaking and staying kind of on that same theme, um, can you share the dangers um, that you find or you see as you travel and interact with different groups? Because, um, and maybe this is a, a, a one and two question. First question, do you find that there's, that it's um, specific to any stream? Um, but the second part then is, um, can you share the dangers that you find in the uprise of religious nationalism within mainstream faith circles as it's moved from the fringes to the everyday views? Well, um, I think there are all kinds of dangers. And I guess I'd start by saying this. I, I find it to be present in every stream. It really is. And, you know, because for somebody like me, I have this... I'll back up for a second. I have this theory that um, however we've been brought up, if you, if, if you did grow up in a faith tradition and a Christian tradition, I think that if you don't, I think it's actually pretty common that if you continue on a certain kind of journey, that when you first start to experience God in a way that feels other to you in some way, um, there's this sense of like, oh man, well, this is where it's at. So I meet people all the time who come from Pentecostal charismatic uh, tradition and they discover liturgy. It's like, oh, well, this is where the Holy Spirit really is. Let's go over there. People that come from very liturgical traditions discover the freedom, kind of found more in charismatic space. Like, oh, well, here's where the Holy Spirit really is. You know, go over there. So I think there was definitely a time in my life when I sort of more blindly romanticized. Well, the, the, the folk, the people in places where I come from just don't get it. I need to get these spaces where they do. And my, what I've seen is that, you know, and, and again, no slur on anybody because it, it but literally, I mean, I, you know, I know when I talk to my Catholic friends that they're grappling with this, with this thing of nationalism, and I know that in its own form, even within the Orthodox tradition, that absolutely is happening. I don't think you can be an American and escape that. So I don't think it's particular to a stream. I think that it is most dangerous, though, maybe in the. Um, and I don't mean this is slur either, because there's you know there's something beautiful about all expression of faith, but I feel like in evangelical spaces in particular, in white evangelical spaces. And uh, in sort of, and I don't mean this as a, uh, as a knock on all uh, large churches that do beautiful things, but especially in your sort of like garden variety, sort of brand X kind of mega church. What I think what often happens is that um, those kinds of churches um, can inevitably at times, because you're not tethered to a particular tradition. See, I kind of feel like stumbling into the deep resources of my own tradition is largely what saved my faith. I mean, if I, if I, I but there was a tradition to kind of, there was a place through which to fall down that rabbit hole, you know. Whereas I feel like what often happens in some of those kind of spaces is that there is no tradition. You've got this understanding that we're kind of an ahistorical people worshiping an ahistorical, apolitical Jesus that's not located in any particular context. Jesus doesn't come from a particular place in a particular time. We're kind of making this stuff up as we go, as if this just started with us. And so I, that's why I think sometimes within white evangelical spaces, it is the most insidious. It's because you don't have resources from a tradition to draw from, because there's kind of this sense that, well, me and Jesus just kind of started this thing up yesterday. And, you know, that's, and that's all we've got. 
further. Um, we're, we're kind of circling around this conversation about social justice, um, perhaps with the assumption that we all kind of know what we mean. But I'm going to ask you, what do you mean uh, when we're talking about social justice? Um, and why, why specifically does it matter or ought it matter for a person of faith, particularly a Christian? Yeah. It's such a good question. And I, I, th I think that is important because that we define what terms mean and especially right now I'm you know I find that the word justice sometimes is even kind of a polarizing one in terms of um, I, I will say this and this is not a definition that I can ever recall reading in a book I'm sure someone's articulated this way before but this is I guess because growing up the way I did there was such an immersion in the language of scripture this is just this is the verse the image that always comes to mind is uh, from the prophet Isaiah, this idea that the time is gonna come when God is going to bring the mountains low and lift the valleys. And the valleys will be exalted, but the mountains will be made low. That for me is at the heart of what justice really is, is that we live in a world in which the mountains are very high and the valleys are very low and there needs to be a leveling. And of course, Christians understand that uh, in a, specifically in a kind of a messianic context, we speak of Jesus, that Jesus is the one who's gonna be responsible for this, for this kind of leveling. You know, um, I think the reason that it's, so, that it's so important that we care about, again, these words can be used different ways, but equality in that sense, equity in that sense, is because, you know, it, it, it just plain and simple is, it's almost all that Jesus talks about. <laughs> and now, I, I've had many moments where that just, it's so troubling to me that I spent so much of my life. I mean, I, I, I'm a product of really wonderful preaching in some ways, but I heard such little preaching on the words of Jesus. And now when I think about how, you know, for example, uh, I grew up in an environment where there were tons of sermons about that very much hellfire and brimstone, a lot of rapture talk, all those kinds of things. So I never will forget what it was like when I first started reading the gospels for myself for the first time being like, oh, wait a second. So Jesus, Matthew 25, is separating the sheep and the goats, and there is language of judgment here that's pretty austere and, and scary, but oh, it's not on the basis of who has or has not prayed the sinner's prayer. <laughs> this is based on how folks respond to those who are most marginalized and oppressed among us. Like they, like, so all that was kind of shocking, that all the judgment language that I heard, that we extracted that and took it very, very seriously, but made it all about whether or not you pray the sinner's prayer. Whereas whenever Jesus talks about judgment, how we're ultimately judged by God, it always comes down to how do we take care of people on the margins of society. So now for me, it just, you know, um, it seems like it's all I read in scripture. And again, not to, not to go on and on thing, I don't mean to be preachy, but I literally just had an experience recently where, and I want to be careful how I say this because not people know what I'm talking about, but uh, a, a significant pastor from my past, I listened to a sermon and um, he was preaching for the prophets. And I, I just, oh my goodness, it was so jarring because he's preaching, because at this point I've been so immersed in the prophets. They've become, especially right now, Reading the prophets are like the only thing to keep me sane. Like the prophets have never felt more relevant to me. So I'm spending a lot of time there. And he quoted these couple verses from Hosea that was allegedly the text of the message. And it's all about essentially returning to God. Well, I knew as soon as he started preaching about this, where this was going to go. I mean, the whole thing was basically like, I mean, it was about how women dress these days and weddings. And there was all kinds of just ranting about you know, these, this kind of personal, individualistic, pietistic, 
holiness, you know, the movies people watch these days, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like thinking about this, and I know that chapter very well, and I'm like, <laughs> Hosea defines explicitly what it means to return to God, and it's stop exploiting the poor, stop ignoring the people among you who are on the margins, oh, and stop trusting your military might. I mean, it's right there in the two <laughs> verses past where you read. But the things that we would extract and that we would highlight, which, by the way, I say this with a lot of humility, actually, because I realize that I'm sure I'm still reading Scripture quite the same way in ways that I don't know about. The stuff that I choose to highlight and don't highlight and all that. But I, I guess just to bring it back around, even when Jesus says, you know, to the religious leaders of his time, that, you know, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. That's what it comes down to. Jesus is never, when you really read the Gospels, Jesus is never really concerned about pietistic, individualistic kind of holiness. It's always that what it means to be made right with God has to do with being made right with our, with our neighbors, coming into right relation. Like, like, we don't need to be reconciled to God in that regard. What God is looking for is for us to reconcile with our friends, with our world, with the creation itself. Amen. Come on. He gets up for you So, um, I feel like that's a, a really good transition or setup to, to my next question. And, and, and I'm going to phrase this in a way that just lets you kind of take it where you would like. Um, but in the, in the fall of 2017, uh, you attended a concert, yes. as, as I understand it, um, and, uh, at Liberty University. Um, and so uh, this wasn't just any normal concert, and the events that transpired uh, certainly was uh, not... Uh, I would say what you expected. So if you just kind of take it from there, and uh, any of the, the preface to that as well as the where that leaves you now. This is the, this is the quintessential kind of story because there are a number that are like them. But why I feel like anything on kind of the activism and justice side has largely been stuff over the years I feel like I've stumbled into. And maybe some of it is just because I'm enough of a preacher and maybe enough of a Pentecostal preacher that I just, you know, I end up just opening my mouth Maybe too much, too wide, I don't know. And then stuff happens as a result. So what happened specifically, and I, I, I noted, by the way, there was somebody on Twitter who said that they came from Liberty to here. So if you're here, I've got to meet you and learn your story. So, I mean, I had already been um, saying a lot of things about uh, Christian nationalism. And what I see is white nationalism affecting, directly uh, infecting the church in ways that really really scary to me, and and I'm very much, by the way, I think a lot of the things that we've been seeing the last couple of years, I always want to be careful to say, I don't feel like it's anything new. One of the things we were talking about a few moments ago is it seems like a really apocalyptic time. You know, the word apocalypse just means to, to reveal or to unveil. It's a time of unveiling. I think things that have been kind of in the darkness for a long time are just the, the lights are bright on right now, and it's midday, and we're just seeing things and, and, and certain kinds of divisions and ideologies that have been around for, for a long time. But one of those things that I found most alarming, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., who's the president of Liberty University, I mean, there's a lot of things that we could say about our dear friend, Brother Jerry. I mean, this is someone who said not long ago, that, and actually I appreciate his candor here, that Jesus doesn't have anything to do with how he thinks politically. I really appreciate him saying that. Franklin Graham won't say that, it's equally true, but Franklin Graham will quote Bible verses and try to make it sound like, Jer Jerry Falwell Jr. really makes no has no pretensions, really, of, you know, coming at any of this as a Jesus follower, which, you know, uh, 
I'm getting ahead of myself. What in particular, what had happened that kind of set my brain on fire and caused me to, as I, I try, I actually, we've talked about this a lot this weekend, I try not to be a reactionary person and I don't swing at every pitch and, you know, I just don't want to kind of be beholden to all that, but I had just read a story where Jerry Falwell Jr. had given a Breitbart exclusive interview, I'll just let that lay, in which he said, because this was during midterms, um, he, he was calling, and, and so Steve Bannon was kind of out making the rounds a lot more now as like a political strategist, telling Republicans how they should vote and all that. So the, he, the specific quote was, he was calling on evangelicals to partner with Steve Bannon to oust the fake Republicans. That was the quote that just made me nearly throw my laptop out the window. Because I think, you know, whatever you think about Trump and all the drama the last couple years, I don't see how it cannot be conceded that Steve Bannon in, partic in particular represents all of, all of the most insidious stuff that's happening, especially with regards to what nationalism and just the whole history, like everything I think that's most unhealthy and toxic there. So I was really bothered by it, and I know some people who go to Liberty, I know some students, I know some folks who teach there, etc. And I know that even in a place like Liberty, there is nowhere near a consensus on these things. What happens is, and some of this stuff has come more to light in uh, like the last few months, there was an amazing article Politico did that is really worth reading. But anybody who's been near Liberty knows this. It's an authoritarian regime. I mean, he runs it like it's some kind of a dictatorship. Um, uh, interesting how people who are thin-skinned authoritarians uh, tend to be very favorable to other folks who are thin-skinned authoritarians. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, so what I said on Twitter, because I'll start on Twitter, so many things are on, on Twitter, don't they? Is that I basically said, you know, I would love to be part of some kind of a non-violent, constructive, I think I said prayer-oriented action was the language I used. A prayer-oriented action with other folks at Liberty who feel different. Because the other thing I should say is that this is, it really is an authoritarian regime. You know, everything from censoring slash firing editors of the student paper down to uh, uh, professors there are not tenured. Tenure is actually not available. And if uh, media, and it's funny because I mean, he's on Fox and Friends all the time, but if there's gonna be any kind of like uh, media access, Jerry Falwell Jr.'s office has to directly approve for any of their professors to talk to the media. So they can't say what they think generally. So I say on Twitter, I'd love to be part of some kind of, a, of this prayer-oriented action if anybody would like to join me, blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm tagging Liberty in this, and they're paying more attention than I imagined they would be paying. So uh, in the midst of all this, my friend, Amanda Ramirez, one half of uh, the band Johnny Swim, Amanda and Abner, they're just uh, amazing, just lovely people. Amanda kind of chimed in, uh, just said something encouraging, agreeing with me, and also said, hey, Jonathan, we're actually playing at Liberty next week. You ought to come to the show. And I got to think about it, and I was like, yeah, I think I've got some frequent flyer miles. I should go to that show. So at the very last minute, I get on a plane to go to Liberty, and by the time I got there, what I learned is that, I don't think they'd mind me saying this now, because I don't believe they're gonna be playing there again. Um, <laughs> there was already a bit of a debacle, because just from what, from what Amanda said on Twitter, the Liberty administration was freaking out, afraid there was gonna be some kind of demonstration show. Well, that is not at all what I had in mind. My thought was, I'm gonna go to the show, support my friend Johnny Swim, and, 
The next morning, I was planning to have a small prayer gathering. We had about 20 people I've been in contact with. And funny enough, too, I had even thought, initially I thought we would probably need to do it off campus. But the people I talked to, this turned out to be wrong, by the way. But we're all thought, you know, okay, so long as we weren't inside a building, like we're in an open area, like the quad, we're probably fine. So like 20 of us would get together and pray. And that wasn't like a front. The idea is like, let's pray and discern how God might lead us to, to embody some kind of constructive resistance. That's all it was going to be, an hour-long prayer meeting with a few minutes of conversation, and then we'll figure it out. So I'm thinking whatever I'm going to do was like six months out. I was thinking about like the spring, something like that. Well, instead what happens is Johnny's mom gets done playing their set, which was phenomenal, like they always are. It was an open ticketed, ticket event, so this wasn't like a chapel service. Anybody could come. I'm there as a guest of the band. And when it's over, I'm back in the green room with Abner and Amanda and their band just kind of hanging out. And I get a tap on my shoulder and it's the head of Liberty's campus police. And so he asked me, he says, Mr. Martin, we're gonna need you to step outside. Abner immediately gets very defensive and kind of like, hey, this is our guest, our green room. What are you, and I'm like, no, it's completely fine. Whatever you do, I said, I'll step outside. So I walk outside and, and there's like, um, I, I didn't remember how many were there now. I think there were five. There were like five armed Liberty campus police officers outside the green room. And he says in this very demonstrative way, as soon as he get out, kind of chest puffed out, like, Mr. Martin, you are trespassing. This is private property. If you ever, you are banned for life. If you ever step foot on this property again, you're subject to immediate imprisonment and fines and all these things. I mean, they like had like a flashlight in my face and like, I mean, just, just the whole, I mean, like treat like I'm <laughs> a hardened criminal. They wouldn't even let me walk to my car. Like they escorted me out, you know, drove me off campus, all that. And, and honestly, like I can laugh about it now, but at the time, I mean, it really was pretty jarring. I wasn't looking to do some kind of arrestful action. I believe in that kind of civil disobedience as very much a student of the civil rights movement. I just wasn't looking to do something like that. And I assumed whatever we would do, uh, even months later, would probably be really low key. So this is why it all becomes so funny because, and I, and I mean, I, I really don't feel like this is, there, there's no uh, false humility here. I, my sense is I'm not a big enough fly for Jerry Falwell Jr. to squat at. I mean, liberty is an enormous institution with tremendous power and all that. But what makes this funny? So in the middle of the night, uh, I posted on Instagram the, uh, my citation in which I was banned for life from Liberty. And by the time I woke up the next morning, it was like the world was on fire. I mean, the Atlantic immediately put out a story and then it was NPR and then it was Newsweek and like on down the line. And it just blew up into a massive thing. I still to this day think it's so funny because what would have been a prayer gathering with 20 students, it probably wouldn't make much of a difference because Jerry Jr., it was him directly who made the call, so overswung at it that it became national news for a week. And he's writing an editorial on why, we, why they banned me and I'm writing an editorial on my perspective on how that happened and all that. And it just, it was very surreal because I just never, but I honestly, and I don't know how all of y'all will feel about this, but keep in mind I'm a hillbilly Pentecostal and this spirit thing's in my roots. Um, I, again, I hope that they wouldn't mind me sharing that. It, I got back to the hotel that night and was actually a little bit shaken up by how it went down. It just felt so like, and again, I know people, uh, especially people of color, deal with all kinds of issues surrounding police and all that I never have to think about. This was a new experience with me, especially when I felt like there was a real conscious attempt to intimidate me. And I remember being kind of shaken up. And a couple of my friends from the band 
and Abner, like they came back at 2 30 morning and they, they first thing they like prayed over me and there may or may not even been a little tongues going on and all that. And actually there was this real sense where we felt like, man, I think God is actually doing something here. I think God is actually going to use this because what happened is it further than this broader conversation, which is all I wanted to have, you know, is to say, hey, this voice does not represent the entire church, doesn't even represent all of Liberty. Let's have a real, let's have a real conversation about it. Because people like Dr. Barber, Dr. William Barber, who's amazing, the Poor People's Campaign, and people like Shane Claiborne had been trying in a very friendly way to get Jerry to have some kind of open dialogue with them for forever. And he just, you know, completely refused. So I'm like, let's have the conversation. So I felt like we were able to have the conversation in the public square. And then a few months later, Dr. Barber, along with Shane Claiborne, Tony Capallo, the Red Letter Christians, organized what was called the Lynchburg Revival, where of course not on campus, because they threatened to put all of them in jail too. But we did, were able to have an event across town that I feel like was like a constructive counter witness. And you know, it, a, after all that, I did back off considerably because I kind of felt like I had become so polarizing in liberty. There, there's probably no more I can do to front this conversation now. But yeah, it really was something that I just, that, that just sort of stumbled into. So in light of that whole story, talk to us about the role of power and the role of fear uh, surrounding religious nationalism. Wow. Well, power and fear. I mean, those words are those words are everything, you know. And um, I think about the verse in First John that says that perfect love casts out fear. I don't think fear is ever of God or pertains to anything good for the people of God. But you know, that's really what I see happening. Is that, and I have to remind myself of this often. Is even the people that I most vehemently disagree with and would have the strongest critique. I don't really see them as somehow fundamentally evil people. I see them as deeply afraid, deeply afraid. The world is changing at a very rapid pace in every direction. Technology is changing us in ways that we don't even fully understand. We're rewiring our brains. We do that much that we're in the middle of the science experiment in that way. Demographically, everything is shifting. People who have traditionally, like myself, who typically would feel like that somehow they were on the top of the pyramid, you know, uh, white men in particular have had a certain kind of authority, a certain kind of privilege. It's very much being called into question. I think the Me Too movement, you know, is very much a part and parcel of that too. Like all of these power structures are are really being uh, just just deconstructed and decentered right now. So I think what's happening is people who have most benefited from those systems, especially at the top, are very, very afraid. Because we actually are moving into a time and into a world that's very different from the way the world has been ordered before. And I think the bottom line is, you know, going back to that verse in Isaiah about, you know, um, the, the time comes when the mountains will be brought low and the valleys will be exalted. That's not good news if you're on top of the mountain. <laughs> so whether or not the gospel is good news at all is entirely contingent on where you're standing. If you're on the valley, good news, we're going to be exalted. But if you're on top, this is not good news. And I, and I would even want to lean into that to say it's really got not good news for a minute. Because I think what happens is that God in God's mercy, there is a kind of, again, it's merciful, it's tender, but there is a kind of judgment. I thought that's what's happening is that we're being confronted with our true selves. And we're being confronted with a lot of things that have been under the surface that are unpleasant. And that's painful. And uh, especially because I think a lot of the shaking that's happening right now 
threatens our sense of, of, of control. So in that regard, I feel like you know, the relationship between fear and power is everything because the people who are in power are desperately afraid of losing that power. And they're right to be afraid because they actually are. And like they really are. And so I, I really, not to put it too starkly, but this is kind of, because I, I don't want this to sound like super dualistic, but this is kind of how I think about it right now. I, no revolution is neat and pretty, and of course there are going to be overreactions, and of course there are going to be some things that might not be healthy, like whatever, I'm not trying to, I still think at the end of the day, we're in such a seismic shift that's happening right now. If you're a person of faith, you, inevitably you either think like this is some kind of a movement of the spirit that God ultimately is at work and all that, that would be me, I really do believe that. Or... <laughs> Oh man, this is just from the pit of hell. This is just the devil. He's, he's attacking us and coming at us. I mean, it kind of is becoming that stark. Like ultimately, you see this shift in power as either being profoundly good and an opportunity for a tremendous change and growth in a way that's wonderful, or it's really scary and terrible, you know? Uh, so some of us are gearing up to spend some time with family around the holiday season. And sometimes when we gather around those, that table, it does become a dualistic place for a conversation. So I'm curious um, how you have those conversations. Do you have those conversations with family, relatives who think or see the world differently? Or do you have advice for any of us that are gearing up to face family members who see the world differently? No, I'm just staying far, far away. I'm just... Uh... <laughs> Sorry guys, I'm on the road, I'm preaching, uh, you know, the Lord's work is very important. Catch you next year, for, no, that's, it's not like that at all. Um, I have some wonderful conversations with my family, I'm being, uh, I really am being funny. That's, that's a real question. And um, I, I actually really struggle with it because I think what I, what I hear a lot of people say, and I'm very empathetic to this, like I'm really empathetic to it, is, okay, I need that table at Thanksgiving or going home for Christmas or whatever it might be. We just need to not talk about politics because I can't handle it. And that feels too unsafe. And I understand why we would say that. And I definitely have moments where I'm tempted to say that. I think it's just better that we don't have these conversations so that we can get along. However, at the end of the day, I really think that instinct is not the right one because if, especially as people of faith, we do believe that the stakes at the moment that we're living in are high, like, there's just no one else that's going to be able to communicate to our own family and friends. And I know it is, oftentimes it's like, we got a shot. But if anybody can, it's going to be us. So I actually think um, even though there might have to be some boundaries and there might be, have to be some, some parameters or whatever, it really is important to have those uncomfortable conversations because I just think that's the only thing that moves the world forward. For all things I love about social media, one of the most detrimental things is that it's really easy for us to live in our own silos where we never have to deal with someone whose perspective is different than us. And by the way, I feel like um, in that sort of uh, mischievous way that the Holy Spirit has, this gets challenging me all the time because still to this moment, the people who I think of as being ideologically, man, those, those folks are just... Those folks are just bad. I mean, I don't write anybody off, but that's just bad. And then inevitably, I'll have some kind of beautiful interaction with someone who thinks very different from me. I see the goodness of God in them. Oh, or maybe they actually help me. 
And isn't that horrifying when someone you've decided to write off actually comes to your aid and like, oh. And, I, and you think God works in that way. You know, so I think we, we need to be open to the surprise of God in that way. My counsel would just be, because I don't, I don't want to encourage anybody to get in over your head or get in a place where it's just, it's just too uncomfortable whatever. But I think there is a way that we can have conversations that are tender and human and where we're not, to me, what judgment really is, the negative sense of that word, is to impugn someone else's motive. It's absolutely possible to have these kind of conversations and not impugn someone else's motives. Like, I just, I just think a lot of those conversations need to be had. But in terms of like how to do it, I'm struggling to discern that as much as anybody because I definitely don't want to ever come to those kind of settings with an agenda. I'm not coming like loaded up, like whatever. But at the same time, like I've heard you the other conversations in my life, I want to at least be open to the possibility, well, maybe there's something the Holy Spirit wants to do here that's important. And maybe, not again, because they're, they're the terrible people and I'm the noble one bringing Jesus. There's nothing like that. But just this sense of openly, like dynamically, how, how might God crack them open, how might God crack me open in the process of having some vulnerable conversations, some risky conversations? So good. Um, I, I wonder, I think it was uh, Nietzsche, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but, um, but it said, be careful when you fight monsters, lest you become monster, uh, become the thing that you're fighting. And in in um, this season where we're standing against so many systemic evils, um, things that have, whether they've been dormant um, or they've just somehow been shrouded and hidden, oftentimes sanctified. Hmm. Um, as we fight them, what word or how can you speak to um, maybe even specific practices of how it doesn't take our soul in the process? That's such a great question. One that I'm wrestling with all the time right now. Because here's, because I really am convinced of this, y'all. I say y'all a lot. I'm not from around here. You can probably tell that the North Carolina comes through a lot. Um, I really do believe that that's maybe the thing about the moment we're in for all the ways that it's not unique. And a lot of these tensions have always been here. I think this right here is, is a very particular danger of the moment we're in, is that I feel like so much of the energy around some of these forces that I would feel like even the gospel calls us to oppose. To the Nietzsche quote, if you stare at it directly for too long, even in an attempt, and I, 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 try, I always try to be cautious when I talk this, because I'm not trying to tone police anybody, I'm not, I'm not saying don't be mad, I'm not saying don't be angry, I'm not saying anybody doesn't have a permission to be hurt. But if you gaze at that all the time, then even in the process of trying to resist it, you do take on the character of the thing that you're trying to resist. I'm using the word energy. If that sounds too new agey for you, I could be almost fundamentalist about it and talk about spiritual warfare. It's like if you're if if you're looking at the if you're looking at the devil eyeball to eyeball too long, like it is, you start to take on that same vitriol, that same venom. Um, and even speaking about things that might technically be doctrinally right, and maybe you are really motivated by your faith in Jesus in a way that's sincere and wonderful or whatever, it gets skewed if you stare at that eyeball to eyeball too much. So for me, the, the major practice, and I, I don't mean this in a way, again, to sound too pietistic, but I think it's so important. Prayer has never been more valuable to me in this way. Because if I don't come in from the storm, 
I don't want to be uninformed. I don't want to put my head in the sand. I'm not saying don't check Twitter. But if I live caught in that cycle constantly where I'm always reacting to like the story of the moment, first of all, emotionally I'm a wreck. I'm convinced this is contributing to so much anxiety for so many of us. Mm. I think a lot of us, it's so damaging to our own mental health that we feel like the only way to be faithful is to be plugged in all the time. No, like you kind of have to come in out of that. I think a lot right now about uh, what Paul says in Romans 12, even about this idea of, of having our minds renewed. Because the prayer does that. The, the practice in particular that I found most helpful and hardest to do is praying for the people who I most strongly disagree with. I'm telling you, it messes with you. You know, like uh, and the, anybody who uses the Book of Common Prayer, you know, you're forced to pray for your leaders and like that. It's a great practice, right? Because whenever you whenever you pray for someone, you humanize them. You can't help it. To pray for someone is to humanize them. And we're in a time where so much of our rhetoric dehumanizes. So now all of a sudden, oh, I have to think of this person not just as a as a personality, but as a person. They might have an ideology, and I might think the ideas are bad, but oh, there's a human being underneath there who was once a child, who once was, um, I told a story in a sermon a while back, I don't think my friends would mind too much uh, me talking about this, but it was interesting because both of these folks are, they're kind of public people in faith space, and it was very interesting because um, the one person is about 20 years older than me and comes out of very, very white evangelical conservative spaces. And the other friend of mine who, uh, who is black and who is like such a progressive, like her church and her ministry, they do the most cutting edge, some of the most beautiful ministry. I mean, they've got, uh, they've got like HIV testing every Sunday at their church. The stuff they do like with uh, housing, I mean, it's phenomenal. And, and it was this fascinating conversation because the person who comes out of white evangelical spaces was saying, I can't pray for President Trump right now because I hate him. I just can't do it. I won't do it. And my friend who comes from this amazing justice black church tradition tells him this story about how a few weeks ago they, they were intentional, knowing there's a lot of pain and a lot of, um, and I, I feel like I can say that without being polarizing even in this space. Whatever you think about it, around this current administration and race, there are a lot of difficult conversations that are having to be had. And whoever you diagnose it, like it's, it's very, it's evolved time in that way. And she and her husband felt specifically led to have their community have like a time of really guided strategic prayer for Donald Trump as a person. And she was talking about how powerful it was because it just, the, the, the way it seemed to tenderize people and open them up and even describe it as kind of like a breakthrough. And I just thought this to me, like this is the power of the gospel. So here's a person who's coming out of like, the whitest Southern Baptist space is imaginable, who's saying, I don't know how to pray for this person right now because I'm so mad. And here comes the social justice Christian who by all accounts would be like championing everything that in that world would be, and who's saying, oh no, you have to pray for the president. And let me tell you how you can do that. And then, oh, this is what she said, because she's also very prophetic, whatever you think about that. She said, uh, she's like, she's very prophetic. And if y'all don't know what I mean, I, again, I venture out when I get in my charismatic side of this way. Uh, we would say she could, she will read your mail. I get nervous talking to her sometimes because I'm like, I don't know what all she knows about my life in the last week. You're like you, like you want to like repent before you're like she's very, she has a very kind of mystical connection with the Holy Spirit. And she said to my friend, she, I'm glad I thought about that part. She said, I'll tell you exactly what I do. She said. 
whenever I struggle to pray with somebody, I ask the Lord, can you show me where they're wounded? And she said, I asked the Lord, show me where he's wounded. And my other friend, my other friend says, well, did he tell you anything? <laughs> and she said, yes, he did. She said, and look, I, this seems to check out for me for little things I know biographically, but how would I know? I just, I'm just delivering the mail here. She said, when I prayed about it, I thought the Lord specifically said was that his father was so hard on him. His father was so hard on him. And there were so many ways that he was not affirmed when he was a child. And she said, whenever I pray for him, God always takes me there. That that little child is still there inside of him. And when I pray for him, I'm always confronted with the ways in which I have not been affirmed. And the way I still act out in ways that seek affirmation and approval. In ways that are not consonant really with my faith in Jesus. And whenever I do that, the Lord always reminds me that no matter how ideologically different we are, we're really not that far apart. Mm. And I thought that was just so profound. Wow. We are getting ready to have an opportunity to ask some questions of Jonathan, but before we do that, uh, we want to ask an, uh, one last question. Um, you've already shared your fondness for our Episcopalian friends. So Barbara Brown Taylor, um, Episcopal priest, is fond of asking, what is saving your life right now? So I want to ask that in terms of your personal project. Um, what is exciting to you that you're currently working on? And then larger, um, what are you most hopeful about? What brings you hope in light of the work that you're doing and what you see? Barbara Brown Taylor is amazing. She's a hero of mine. So, yes, and a, a wonderful representative of the Episcopal tradition. And I love that question, you know. It's interesting, too, because... I'm doing this daily podcast right now. I actually didn't get one out today because in the midst of all this travel and stuff, it just has been what it is. But um, it basically is five days a week. And whenever I tell people that, people are always like, are you serious? And I keep thinking to myself, am I serious? Like this is, because I've only been doing it for two months, maybe if that. So it's a very new project. Um, it's just funny because I feel like for a long time, partly because I so believe in the value of face-to-face -face community, I don't think there's any way to replace that. So I was a little suspect of doing, trying to do something in digital space that provides some kind of a sanctuary or something. But what, it, what actually has happened is it feels like, that just seems like what God is doing in my life. Like that's where the grace is, is a lot of these spaces are open online. I connect with people who are, that's where my heart is right now, is with all these disillusioned, disenfranchised daughters and sons of the church who don't know what to do with their faith. And so they, we find each other on the internet, and I feel oddly called to that space somehow. So I felt like I was just supposed to lean into that. You know, I mean, I think about how often a lot of the voices I feel like are most destructive. They are on AM radio for hours a day, and... You know, all the, and, and there are other things that are good. I mean, I like to listen to uh, Fresh Air with Terry Gross. I can listen to that every day of the week. Like, but I couldn't think of a more theologically reflective, kind of open, robust podcast, kind of coming again from, you know, basically a Christian perspective that was in a daily format. So I thought, I'm going to experiment with this thing. And what has been really amazing about that, and, and it's, it's taken so much of my bandwidth, I'm exhausted, but this also is so energizing. I just keep talking with the most extraordinary people. And it seems like one conversation leads to another conversation with another, with another person. And I feel like all these folks that, that I've been able to have on the podcast even recently, these are people who are saving my own faith. These are, people, these are the people who like make me want to stay in. 
And so I love, it's actually become a really wonderful discipline for me in that way because it's pushing me to seek out those voices whom I would seek out anyway to give me wisdom in terms of how I live my life. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's, just, it's just been really beautiful in that way. So it feels like there's a lot of life on that right now, a lot of grace. It keeps me, as much as, again, I don't want to disentangle entirely from what's happening in the world, I do feel like it puts me in touch with a different story, uh, another account, and uh, that's been really powerful. The other thing is, um, I don't know, I feel like right now I don't get nearly enough space for this, but stand-up comedy helps me tremendously. <laughs> I need, oh, I need it. Oh, no, 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 listen, I've thought about that, but I've actually thought about that, and our church does meet, actually, currently at uh, the OKC Improv, but... It more like like I need I need that anything that makes me laugh. I absolutely need fiction right now. I can't read too much heavy theology because my life is so heavy right now. Like I need a little bit of so it, you know I'm like I'm reading the new Stephen King book right now. Like I need more of that in my life to just you know lower my blood pressure. I think so. There's a lot of that. I guess the only thing I would say in terms of like a project and I appreciate prayers in this direction. I really am trying to finish my next book, which I've been talking about forever. I think no one believes me anymore. My last book technically came out in 2016, but we just released the audiobook a few weeks ago. That's new. But it's, it's been interesting, you know, because I feel like I've written two books, and I didn't design it this way, but the first book, Prototype, is so much about innocence and kind of getting back to that childhood sense of wonder. The second book is absolutely like the fall, the death book. It's the cross book. So I feel like this is kind of my resurrection book, and I haven't been able to finish it forever. And I think what happened, though, is that I just think I had to live some more life. Uh, How to Survive a Shipwreck came out of the most painful season of my life, and I think, you know, as much as I wanted to hit the fast-forward button and say, like, oh, it's all resurrection now, I just need to live some more into it. And now I actually do feel like I'm coming at it from more resurrection space, and and that's, that's exciting, but also challenging for me because I like, I almost got used to being the shipwreck guy for so long. And that was all very authentic and came from the depths of my soul. That like, that's kind of how I got used to talking. And part of what happened with in every earlier draft of this book and why I keep throwing out chapters at a time and having to start over is that it was still sounding a little bit too much like shipwreck 2.0. And I almost felt embarrassed about the fact that I'm experiencing joy now and a lot of new life. And that, yeah, things, there are a lot of things that are hard and heavy. But I actually am finding a lot of beauty and joy in terms of people and relationships and friendships. And, you know, we've, the, the community that we've started in Oklahoma City called The Table, I work with, I say work with, it's all very much a labor of love at this point, as a lot of church plants are. But it is the most extraordinary core team in our community. Uh, Nicole Nelson and Malika Cox and Cece Jones Davis, I mean, they're just phenomenal. So this, this, and I'm like, uh, we, we joke openly about me being the token white guy among this team of very gifted, anointed, powerful women, and uh, they're amazing preachers and teachers, and it just, having, having all of that kind of in the foundation of something new is very exciting right now. And having a lot of interactions with people who are uh, so either new to the faith, I say that, Oklahoma City is very Bible Belt, a lot of people who have left the church or on their way out. That's very invigorating for me too. Now, um, it's challenging in terms of like trying to pay the rent of the, even the space that we rent, that we, that we meet in, you know, because it's, <laughs> but it's so wonderful and so refreshing. That, like it's a space where there's no judgment and people are able to ask any and all kinds of questions and there's a lot of room to just kind of be on a journey. All of that is very, 
encouraging. I'm sorry, I feel like I've over answered every question. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, well, um, I think now um, we'll move into kind of an open um, Q&R format. Um, and so um, it, it is, that is it by definition. Um, it's open. Um, and so um, if anybody uh, would like to go first or uh, as you go, just kind of raise your hand so we can identify. We'll try and, and uh, make sure that as many people as possible have an opportunity while being respectful of of the time here and of course of Jonathan's time as well. So um, on topic of this or additionally, um, if you have any questions for Jonathan, now would be the time. So so in your, uh, maybe your first or, or second, as I cast, you, you spoke about uh, being awkward uh, or, or the awkwardness, kind of weird weirdness, um, just belonging. And uh, first of all, that was really powerful for me because I felt that way in so many levels. So being involved in, in different uh, community things, it's, it's really difficult. So also yesterday um, at uh, Harvest House, you, you spoke about um, humility and, and humiliation, sort of. And so, so I, I want to share this, and then I'm going to ask you to maybe touch on the, the awkward comment, because and being involved uh, through church and being involved in community things, there's times that I felt not black enough or, or too black. Or, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a single parent household, so what is it to be manly? You know, so struggles with raising my boys or reaching out to the community and, and all of these things. So. I'm gonna get emotional, but so it, it, it really touched me in a way because as we do this work and we are in the community, I would bet that there's other people in this room that at times don't understand where they belong or feel that awkwardness or that weirdness or the how-to. Um, and so I just really wanna thank you for that, um, but if you could, uh, for those that maybe don't understand what I'm talking about, <laughs> it's like, what is this guy rambling about? Can you just, can you just touch on that uh, just a little bit, please? No rambling at all. Thank you, friends, so much for just your vulnerability and sharing some of your own story and how that connects with such a deep place. I can't tell you how much that means to me. Um, I think what it looks like for me in terms of the awkwardness is that, I mean, I feel it in all directions right now, you know, because... Um, on the one hand, I'm very much a product of the Pentecostal tradition where, and kind of a holiness Pentecostal tradition, where I'm aware that at this point in my life that my thinking, that my theology is considered too open for a lot of people where I come from. They see me as being too inclusive, and to be uh, too inclusive is to be completely cast out, you know. So I feel like I'm navigating that on one hand where, and that's very painful because, you know, I mean, those are the folks that, that uh, led me to Jesus and opened my eyes. I say this all that we were, uh, Joel and I both were, were commenting this direction. It's funny because I've had this experience about, I feel like the people who taught me how to listen to the Holy Spirit, I'm like, y'all are responsible for making me this way. If y'all wouldn't have taught me how to listen to the Holy Spirit, then I wouldn't have had to move. But, you know, that's what happens is the very, you know, so it's painful to navigate that in terms of people, places I come from where I actually revere because 
even where I see some things where, that I think are unhealthy or where my theology is kind of expanded and changed in some ways, I still see mostly good in those people and in those communities. And it's not been my decision to terminate any of those relationships. So that part has definitely been hard. I mean, even going through like, um, I went through a painful divorce, I guess about five years ago. And it's been interesting how like, even through all that, I felt like, to my surprise, even in those communities, people were actually quite gracious and pretty wonderful. But when I changed my mind about things, sorry, you know, like that's, just, that's where there was no room. You know? So that's a tension I'm navigating. But on the other hand, uh, in a time where so many people that I know, and I, and I understand that I'm so, again, empathetic to this, but a lot of people are losing faith, walking away from faith. Um, I'm in a season in my life where Jesus, and I really again, don't mean that to sound cheesy or something, but Jesus has never seemed or felt more real to me than right now. Like my own connection to Jesus, as I understand Jesus, has never been more profound or more powerful. So I'm very connected in that way. But now, the more I move in kind of these activist kind of spaces and a more progressive kind of, uh, kind of arenas, I find there are a lot of people who are very, understandably, because their own hurts and things that are triggering or whatever, um, don't like how Jesus-centric I am and that I still would talk about or believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I find myself like this often like not fully fitting in anywhere that I am. I think what's wonderful about right, what's happening right now, though, is that I think there's so many people who feel like misfits in that way, and especially because the internet makes all these uh, niches possible. I think people are finding each other right now in a way that's really wonderful. And I think there are a lot of people who, are, who really want to find a way to hold on to their faith and to hold on to some form of the Christian tradition they come from. And yet to do it in a more um, expansive way that's not quite as constrictive. And it, and it can be done. It really can be done. It should be done. But, I, you know, and a lot of folks, I'm sure, even within uh, this community, have been on that kind of journey for a long time. Like, well, yeah. <laughs> you know? But for people like me, that's still very novel. They're like, that that's possible. So, yeah. But thank you again for sharing some of your story. That's so, so powerful. All right. Um, so one of the things that I have issue with, like in terms of faith and religion that I kind of grapple with, is um, people's use in sort of divisive manners and negative ways, um, and how they kind of tie that in sort of with the, with, um, and, and just negative lights. They paint it in a certain way that um, uh, attacks people or makes them feel like they aren't supposed to be in spaces and stuff like that, so kind of similar. Um, and so I was wondering, how do you respond to that? How do you deal with that? Um, and how do you, above all, um, stay vested, invested in faith and religion uh, when you are pitted with those sort of conflicts? Such a good question. I mean, to start with the back end of your question first, I think for me, um, it hasn't felt like I've exactly had a choice. I think I got to a place in my life where I, I just realized the, the Jesus thing, the Jesus stories and the Jesus tradition is so deep in me and um, just kind of the soil and water from where I come from to where I, you know, I don't think I can, I could ever disentangle from all this if I wanted to. It reminds me of, uh, is that Peter's one disciple says to Jesus, like, where, you know, hey, where else would we go? Like, I just, I don't feel like, I, in some ways for me, uh, I almost feel like I haven't had a choice. Not like, in the, you know, I feel like God is coercing me. It just in terms of where my heart is. I think though, the way I would most want to answer your question is to say this, 
And, and if you want more on this, I'm really not, too, I don't want to overly plug the podcast, but I'm not putting so much in it right now. Listen to the episode I did a couple weeks ago with Lisa Sharon Harper on decolonizing the very good gospel because she is brilliant on all of it. Like, I've just come to a place to where I really do believe, and, and I understand well, you know, that I have to contend for this sometimes. I know that a lot of people kind of think of Christianity as here's this very white, Eurocentric, colonizing religion that's responsible for all kinds of oppression and slavery and genocide in the world. And it has often been co-opted in that way. But I am just convinced to my toes, really, that that is not the Christian story, um, that the Christian story has always been a story of liberation, going all the way back to the Exodus. This has always been a story about uh, the liberation of all people, rightly understood, the Old Testament uh, story, the, or the First Testament story, the Second Testament, the New Testament, um, the Jesus story. It's always been, and what Lisa gets at so brilliantly is that Christianity actually has always been a religion of the oppressed. It is a religion of a brown-skinned Messiah living under uh, a Palestinian Jew living under Roman occupation. Like that's who Jesus actually is. And part of her critique and pushback that's so powerful is that she, you know there's a kind of gentleness there, but also a, you know a boldness of kind of saying, be careful that in rejecting Christianity that you don't walk away from the brown-skinned Jesus who champions the oppressed. Because like, people might even do that in the name of becoming woke or being against white supremacy or something. Like, no, you're actually conceding to the white supremacists who have co-opted this faith and taken it from marginalized people and made it mean something else. You're conceding those terms. So she wants to contend very strongly that is just not what Christianity is at its core. And, and, that, and that is truly what I believe. With the, and this is more than just a footnote, this is a pretty big disclaimer, that much of the history of the church, going all the way back to the time of Constantine, when we first had kind of a state-sanctioned church, of course the story of God and the story of Scripture has been used in ways that are abusive and manipulative and coercive and awful. And I like, you know, I, I fully believe all that, but at the end of the day, I do believe that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the story. And I think that there's enough hope and liberation and life in the Jesus story to where I think it's one that's worth contending for. And I don't want, you know, I don't want to let people take my Bible away from me or take my Jesus away from me. You know, that's kind of, that's just kind of where I've landed. But I say that also with this, no judgment for people where that's not where they are on their journey. You know, one of the things I love about Jesus' story of the prodigal son is that when the son asks his father for inheritance early, even though he knows it's going to be squandered, uh, he's like, yeah, like you get to go on your own journey. That's what secure love looks like is, yeah, you get to go on your own path. And I think it's very important, especially for those of us who are or even aspire to be like elders within any kind of a faith tradition, that we really let people go on their own journey in a way that says, hey, I trust you and I trust God. And uh, that, you know, you can walk the path, whatever path that you need to, and trust that God will be with them. And then, you know, without, because uh, I feel like that's the worst thing, is that especially when people are at a place where they feel like their faith is fragile or vulnerable, they need to walk away. The worst thing you can do is like, you know, to grab them and try to convince them to come back and say, like, no, no, like, there, there's permission and room to go on the journey that you need to go on. And ironically, what I'm finding is that a lot of people who are walking away from church right now, I'm convinced, are having much more vital experiences of God and the presence of God than they were able to have in some of their own church spaces. And I think sometimes like you actually, 
you kind of have to leave Jerusalem. You have to leave the temple sometimes to get to Jesus. You know, that's, so I'm not afraid of, of, of that journey or of that story. But at the same time, I find myself still called to be, to be in it somehow. All right, who's next? Um, I just wanted to know how do you, as a person who takes on the role of an activist, tread the line of speaking up for marginalized people but not speaking for marginalized people? Wow, that's such a good question. And I, I think the first thing I would say in all honesty is that I don't know if I always, if I always do that well or right. Like I, that, that's a real concern of mine always because I just think like, I just don't want to ever be unaware of how my own context has shaped me in very unconscious ways I think are, are real. So for one, um, I'm trying to find a way to just live from a posture of humility and repentance and be just aware that like, no one is ever gonna be, become so conscious or something to where there's not a kind of default programming and setting just from the world that we live in, you know, where that, where that kind of happens. I can tell you in my context, it looks like this though. First of all, um, our team, at the table, OKC, if I can say that one more time, it's a team of badass women of God. And it's very, and not just in, uh, in name, it, it's very equal in our team. And that's part of what's so powerful about it is that I feel like you know, there are no wonky power dynamics. And it, 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 I said this to someone the other day and I thought, they're gonna think like, this sounds like a, a ridiculous kind of way of praising them, but I said, I, I almost feel like I'm coming to understand the Trinity better from our little core team because I feel like there's just this constant deference to each other where it's always like, like, like it's just so sweet. There's just such a kind of like, uh, everybody, it's, it's, there's such a sense of reciprocity. So I think having, and the fact that it's very multi-ethnic at its core, um, that's been really wonderful. It's like, cause I feel like, you know, wonderful, strong voices in our church and our community. And then I know like with the podcast right now, that's a lot of what I'm trying to do is trying to really, really feature voices um, that, that where I'm learning from in this way. So Lisa would be one example, but there have been many others. A couple weeks ago, I went to Trinity United Church of Christ to be with my friend Otis Moss III, who I think is one of the most dynamic prophetic pastoral voices in America. Uh, Mark Charles was just on in the last couple weeks. That was really profound. Like, you know, I, so, so the podcast for me has been a very practical extension of that, of trying to like, trying to be intentional to pass the microphone. It, it's very unlike tonight, because tonight I'm over talking everything because y'all are actually asking me questions. I really try not to do that when I have guests in the podcast. But just like, I, I, these are the voices that are most shaping me that I want to be heard. But I just think that question is one that's always kind of a rock in my shoe because I just, I just think you can't, I don't want to ever be complacent about it or... I don't know, because I, I think pride is insidious and again, ways that we're sort of programmed and you know, culturally, like I'm always very aware of that. And so sometimes I do, I'm sure I am like the guy who over talks a thing and hogs the mic in ways I don't mean to. So, but I'm trying to, trying to learn how to repent of that. So, all right, who's next? Um, I was really interested in what you were saying earlier about how the church is changing and how the world is changing um, and people of faith kind of have to choose whether to embrace it and, um, as of the spirit or reject it. Um, and I was wondering how you reconcile like a changing Christianity 
with a Jesus who's unchanging and steadfast. And like where you draw the line, especially someone coming from a traditional background, um, where's that line for you? That is a great question. And um, one, again, with none of these things do I feel like I have like profound wisdom or something, but I think what that looks like for me, because I actually do believe that there is something timeless and very unchanging about Jesus. But you know, that's part of been the shift in my life is that um, I came to read all the rest of the text through a radically Jesus-centric perspective. That the person of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the story of Jesus, becomes the interpretive grid, the interpretive lens through which I understand everything else. I unapologetically read all of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, because that's what I see New Testament writers doing. I read Paul through the lens of Jesus, not the other way around. I read Revelation through the lens of Jesus and the stories of the gospel, not the other way around. If my story about last things and the end of things feels like some pin the tail on the donkey ending that has nothing to do with Jesus as he came in the first century, then I assume that's a problem. Because, you know, the angels say when he ascended, this same Jesus is the one who's going to return, right? So I'm like, for me, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is always the focus point. So the stories of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus then take on overwhelming significance. If I read in an Old Testament conquest narrative that the God character in the story says, wipe out all the women and children. And then I read uh, that Jesus tells me to you know, uh, to bless those who persecute me and to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile, all those kinds of things. I don't get to say, well, you know, sometimes it's this and sometimes it's that. So I'll bless my enemies when I want to, but maybe sometimes God wants me to take them out. No, because like I'm reading all of that through the lens of Jesus. And that, that reshapes, so I understand, especially the tradition I came from, a lot of those stories. This is where... I really want to appeal to people who have a more traditional kind of evangelical perspective. It's like, man, I'm like, and that's something I feel like evangelicals get very right that I want to lean into more like, yes, it really is all about Jesus. So, so let it be all about Jesus. And, and if there's, and if there is something else in the broader story of scripture that you can't reconcile with the God revealed in Christ. Keep in mind, Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, or in Hebrews, he is the exact representation of who, like, like Jesus, that, that's, that's the witness of the Christian tradition is that Jesus is the full revelation of God. My friend Brian Zahn likes to say, what's that, what's that little saying he has about like, you know, once we did not know this, but now we do. Like once you come to see that it's always been about Jesus in this regard, again, for those of us who are Christians, I just think that radically relativizes how you read every other text, how you understand everything else about life and faith. So I'm just constantly always filtering through the lens of Jesus. Uh, could I imagine Jesus saying this to a person? Could I imagine Jesus uh, responding in this way? Um, just returning to the Jesus of the Gospels over and over again. I encourage people often, if you, especially if you're in a time where your faith kind of is shifting and um, that's a struggle, I encourage people like, hey, just kind of hold yourself up with the Gospels for a minute. Like, take some time here. Read these stories. Reacquaint yourself with these words because it's so revolutionary and it's so powerful. At the end of the day, that to me is the biggest disconnect between um, what we see in a lot of the North American church, especially white evangelicalism, and what happened in the text. At the end of the day, you hear a lot of talk about, you hear a lot of talk about Jesus. 
And a lot of folks will say they believe in the death and resurrection, but the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, are almost entirely ignored. I think that is the fundamental disconnection is Jesus becomes like a, like a mascot, you know. We're like, we're part of like team Jesus. Without any understanding, you know, that, man, I feel so preachy right now. Jesus says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is a way. There is a Jesus way, which means there is a, there is a way that's not like Jesus, you know. And, and I, so that all just, just conditions me over and over again in my own heart. Like, I want to be part of the Jesus way. I want people to wake up to the Jesus way. But Jesus, I think, is timeless and unchanging. All right, who's next? I see somebody saw another hand earlier. Yeah, of course. Really appreciate what you've been sharing tonight. I came in here really steamed. I feel a whole lot better now. Um, wanted to ask your response. Uh, the reason I was steamed is my church, which is fairly progressive in its attitude, uh, was lied about on social media. Uh, just finding out we're still fleshing out the details on this. I was wondering, how do you respond when people misrepresent what you share? And I'm assuming that that happens. Man, yeah, that happens a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I, here, here, here's, here's what I'm trying to do. I don't know if this is always right or always best, but here's what I'm trying to do. Um, I don't, there's a novel that really shaped my life called uh, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. And while it's fiction, I mean, man, it is profound theological truth. And there's a line in that novel where, uh, that says, nothing truthful about God can ever be said from a posture of defense. I think, I hope I'm getting that right. And I just think about that all the time because about the very moment that I get into defense mode, defensive mode, trying to do some kind of apologetic, like it just, it never, it never works out right because I feel like there's a lot of ego inevitably involved with that. And so this is really hard for me to do, but I'm actually trying to just like, I'm trying to not worry too much about how things are gonna play or always have to clarify everything or set it straight. That's really hard for me to do because my instinct is always like wanting to go, like, you know, like kind of straighten things out. But I just feel like typically that's not kind of the Jesus witness. Um, I'm not saying that there's never a time and place that maybe that some kind of clarification be given. I just know that typically once I kind of get down the path of trying to defend myself in some regard, like it just, it just doesn't go anywhere good because uh, one of my pastor friends said this to me recently, I actually thought, I don't know if that's original him or not, but I thought it was pretty profound. He's like, you know, whenever you get into like this kind of defense, like you're or trying to defend yourself or your views or whatever, um, your friends don't need that and your enemies aren't going to believe you. And I was like, that's true. <laughs> like your real friends kind of don't need it. Like if, if people know you and know your life and know the witness of your life, they typically don't. But, but you're not typically going to change people's minds, in my experience, when you're trying to defend yourself. Now, I actually feel differently about that when it's not myself I'm trying to defend. I think like there are some times when I feel like other people that I love or uh, parts of the body of Christ are kind of slandered or misrepresented in some way, then sometimes I feel like I really need to swing at that. But when it's about kind of like defending me, this little this sermon I gave yesterday at Harvest House was really about that, about the value of humiliation in this regard. I kind of think, well, you know, 
So if people don't think the best of me about something, if I get misrepresented, is that really the worst thing? Because, you know, I mean, everybody gets misrepresented. I don't want to say, like, even Jesus, because it sounds like you're very Jesus. But, I, I, but you see that actually in the Gospels, don't we? Is that how, like, Jesus, you know, even with Pilate, not opening his mouth. Like, that is the hardest thing for me to do. But I'm coming to believe that's more what the way of Jesus often looks like. It's just like, okay, just let some of those things land where they, where they are going to land and not to live from this place of self, self-defense or self-protection? It's a great question. All right, who's next? Have time, yeah, time for one more? Yeah. I feel like it's gonna be a really good one too. <laughs> so you talked earlier about somebody who was like praying for people they disagree with ideologically, ideologically and all of that. Um, and I think, I feel like people say this about every era, but I think now especially is a very divisive time. And I'm going to be honest and say that I find it very, very difficult to think about praying for people I disagree with. How do you think we can start doing that? Like, from what space we can start to do that and have it be genuine? You know, that's such a good question. And yet I kind of feel like, at least for me, um, the only way I can do that, the only way I can do a lot of things is that I, I had this mentality for most of my life. I still, it's still my uh, default programming to be sure that, um, that if I didn't feel something, if it wasn't true to what I was happening in my own spirit, then it's insincere and therefore not valid. And so part of what was really helpful for me um, as a Pentecostal who ended up spending a significant chunk of time, a couple years, in more Episcopal spaces, is that I unlearned a lot of that. Uh, like part of the discipline of praying the Book of Common Prayer is that kind of getting past yourself in that way. And just like, you know, well, this is what the community does. We gather and we pray these prayers. And among those prayers are praying for folks in authority, etc. And what I've learned over time is that I feel like when we engage in these certain kind of practices, sincerity, I don't even know that, that, how much that's really a thing, because the practices change us. The very act of praying for anybody changes me. Whatever changes about the situation, I'm convinced that it changes me. And so I'm kind of getting to a place now, not just in this, but about almost any other spiritual practice, to where I'm trying to kind of get over this idea, you know, that, that I have to feel it or it has to, you know, for it to be authentic. I think, no, sometimes it might be what feels kind of like trudging obedience. Like sometimes it's more like, well, this is what Jesus slash the tradition that I have chosen tells me I'm supposed to do is pray for, for this. So I'm going to do that and see what happens, you know. And I don't think that that's inauthentic. I think to have to always act according to our feelings or emotions, which by the way, is not a way of saying, I'm not demonizing emotions. It's, it's, it's important to feel negative things, etc. But I'm just trying to get to a place to where I operate from this idea that, you know, again, like, I, the only way that these practices can reshape me is if I engage in them when I don't feel like doing them at all. And the fact that I don't feel like it, or that I don't feel like it's necessarily an honest representation of what's happening in my own heart, doesn't mean it doesn't change me in some ways. In the same way that, like, for example, okay, in prayer over the years, I'm coming to believe that um, physical posture is very important to me. Uh, so 
praying with feet on the floor and like a posture of like open, open palms. Uh, there's a receptivity that's there. Or sometimes I pray and I've got my hand physically over my chest right here. All kinds of things that I'm learning about like um, physical or to pray with hands like from this place. To, to pray with my hands, to pray with my body in that way absolutely changes my spirit. It changes my soul. It changes my inner deepest disposition and self. And I feel like, you know, that, that same principle runs true here, that sometimes like you do this stuff that you don't feel like doing at all, and you trust God to do that work of, of, of transformation. And I, um, part of the reason why I'm, I'm getting more and more comfortable with that is that, you know, going into like how we understand the Christian story, I'm so convinced that God is the God of the oppressed and that God's heart and mission is to bring justice and equity to the world to where I feel like, you know, I'm not concerned that by praying for people where there's this ideological difference, whatever else, I'm not concerned I'm going to become like soft on justice. Or, no, 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 because that's what Jesus is all about. Like this is what, in fact, this is my biggest kind of, um, and I never, I actually, to, to these folks, I don't ever say this in a preachy way, but it's my concern actually for people who do more activism and who don't have a faith perspective. Like, look, God, we all got a place here and God uses everybody. No matter what language you use for God, I'm not hung up on any of that. But my concern though is this, I feel like engaging the kinds of things that are happening in the world right now is so draining and it's so demanding and taxing like for your own soul. That's my thing is I just want people to have some kind of a healthy soul and a healthy soul life. Because otherwise I feel like if there's not some kind of spiritual practice, my concern is that the only place you can inevitably land is burnout, bitterness. You just flame out. You know, like um, I mentioned, I think in uh, passing earlier that I feel like uh, anger is not a bad motivation at all. Anger can absolutely get you out of the driveway to do a lot of things that are important. But I don't think it will sustain you forever. So like part of what happens through prayer in particular is that the anger is not eliminated, but it's transfigured. Because like my kind of fire is a burn it down kind of fire. Where if someone cuts me off in traffic, you know, like I am very ready to condemn them to a little hell. I get real fundamental. <laughs> That's what my fire looks like. God's fire is very different because God's fire never destroys. God's fire transfigures. God's fire purifies. God's fire uh, transforms. So I think what happens, especially through prayer or again, any other kind of like good spiritual practice, is that our own anger, our own outrage, not eliminated, but it's transfigured into something that can be channeled in the world that, that actually builds something new. A lot of things need to be torn down. I think God is in the deconstruction in that way. But you, can, you just can't live there forever. What are we gonna build? And I tell people all the time, like, if you're not ready to be part of a Christian community, that's cool. Please be part of some kind of intentional community. Please be connected with some people in really tangible ways because we, we've got to build something new. We've got to build something beautiful. And if that is not going to happen from like membership in a local church, that's completely cool by me. But, but get, be a part of something constructive and some movement with some people in a particular place somewhere that's trying to make the world more beautiful in some way.